0: Today on the Bill Kelly Show on AM 900 CHML,
1: a week where we heard the everyone heard the terribly, ter- terribly sad story. Not only of Carrie Fisher dying, Princess Leia, which was shocking and upsetting to many, many people, but then to top it off, to follow that up a day later, to have her mother Debbie Reynolds die, which just Again, shocking seems like the appropriate word, not just because Debbie Reynolds was famous, but because of the connection. The daughter dies and a day later, mom dies. And her son, Carrie Fisher's brother, said that his mom had died of a broken heart, which is in its own way, lovely and poetic and dramatically tragic, of course. But of course it's a cliche, right? I mean, broken heart is a cliche. No one actually has... It's, It seems like it anyway, right? Well, then you start hearing about Neldon and Helen Potter. They were an an Idaho couple who were married for 73 years, but this year they died less than 12 hours apart of natural causes in December. Or you hear about Dolores and Trent Winstead who were in Nashville, married 63 years, and this year, less than 12 hours after he died, she died. Or Kenneth and Helen Fumily, who were 70 years married in Ohio and died 15 hours apart. Or Don and Margaret Livingood, who were married 59 years. And in August, down in North Carolina, she passed away and he followed nine hours later. Or Clifford and Marjorie Hartland. He was 101. She was 97. They died hours apart on their 76th wedding anniversary. You start hearing these and more and more and more. There was even one not long ago locally. Ramzan and Lila Manick of Stony Creek died within hours of each other after 54 years of marriage. And again, you hear more and more of these stories and you say, well, wait a second. I thought, I assumed that a broken heart was a cliche. Dying of a broken heart was a cliche, but you start to wonder, maybe there's actually something to this. Maybe there is some physiological real thing that happens in some people from sadness, from emotion, from trauma, whatever it is. Well, to help us figure this out and decide whether or not these are all coincidences or if there's something real here Theo Sellis a registered family therapist president of Integrity Works who joins us now Theo thanks for doing this yeah you're welcome how are you I'm great thanks so so let's get right to that are these I listed a bunch of them here and we heard about Carrie Fisher and her mom are these all just weird coincidences or is there actually maybe some truth to the saying that there is possible to die of a broken heart
0: Yeah, I I imagine that some of them are coincidences. Um, You know, we tend to hear these stories and we like these stories because they are very romantic and they kind of bring meaning to our lives and it's a a kind of a tidy way of wrapping up existence. We like them. Um, So, yeah, there's some coincidences. There's Also, I think there's like a loss of a will to live, you know, where when your partner dies or your child dies or someone that's really dear to you dies, you might give up your willingness to take care of yourself, so maybe you're not directly dying of a broken heart, but you're dying of the impact of not taking care of yourself, or You know, maybe your partner was the person who was the one that was responsible more for your care, or maybe you gave up your health trying to nurse that person, and so you sort of in a weakened state. But it turns out there is something actually called broken heart syndrome, where there's actually studies that say that show that your heart does go through changes, like that there's certain chemicals that are, you know, related to the fight or flight syndrome that actually changed the shape and the ability of the heart to function during this very acute time. And so technically, I suppose you're not dying of a broken heart, but you're dying of an altered heart, a heart that is not functioning as well as it could have been, especially if your heart was maybe not so strong in the first place, may not be able to handle that additional stress. So I guess technically you could say there's this truth to broken hearts, dying of a broken heart.
1: Well, and I read this morning that there were, and again it's it's one of those things that it's really hard to make a scientific solid connection. You believe that there is something here because of the timing or whatever, but something like six thousand cases a year in the States. I don't have numbers for Canada. And interestingly, most of these, it seems, happen in women, which is why it's also called the widowhood effect, as you know, but nonetheless I look at this and, and you talk about the fact that it affects people. Is this a is this a a sorrow uh an outcome of sorrow purely, or is it a stress-related thing that happens?
0: Yeah. How do you separate the two, you know? I suppose. Right, because if you, on some practical level, on some very fundamental, not very romantic level, we're all uh, kind of a bag of chemicals. And so, you know, when we have fluctuations in chemicals, that sort of results in our experience of sorrow. So you can't really separate what's a physical versus a psychological slash emotional experience. So um you know there's no doubt that when we when we open our hearts here we go using this poetic language to another person we really love them they become a part of who we are it's not just a, another person they become part of our identity in a way we you know we we're a parent and so if we lose a child we're we're how do we go about living our lives being a parent without that child if we're you know if we're a partner and we lose that partner either through death or even through divorce or breaking up a relationship. I think oftentimes that's not part of it. in the same lines. You know, it's not just a loss through death, but you can lose someone and they're still alive, but you can't connect with them anymore the way you used to. That's a big part of who you are as a, as a person, and, and, and people literally feel direct of that experience. They go about going on feeling the same way, having the same will, to live, still feeling good about themselves, still wanting to be able to take enjoyment of their lives when that Aspect of who they are, they can't live that as fully as they used to be able to because that person no longer is there, and of course it's incredibly stressful.
1: And you you, know, you mentioned a couple minutes ago that the ideas of you know if you have a partner die or a child die, you lose the will to live, or if someone has been your caregiver. And, th- and those, I think, clearly, I think a lot of people could understand that, especially if it's over a period of time. If you have a spouse who is your primary caregiver and she or he passes away and three months later your health has deteriorated, I think we understand that. Okay. This, is, this is more the idea of within hours or within a day or two that the level of stress, the level of sorrow, the level of grief has actually changed something physiologically in your body, yeah. which, j- again, just seems... Very poetic in a sad way, but almost hard to believe that it could happen that quickly.
0: Well, if you think about it, if you, that fight or flight syndrome that's associated with chemicals like, like adrenaline and noradrenaline, these are, you know, literal physiological experiences that our body has that impacts the heart's ability to function very well. And so quite literally, you could say that that person, um, that, 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 that thing that we call that, uh, sort of like a, a broken heart syndrome. Literally, is not just a psychological one, but a physiological one. You know, when we when we have like a sudden scare, if someone jumps up behind you, and scares yep, you, and yep. you kind of have that rush, right? That puts a puts a certain amount kind of pressure on your heart. So that that surge, your heart starts, blood rate starts impre- in, you know, raising, your heart's pumping a lot faster, and so you can see it's quite a shock to the system. And so it seems like. What they're finding is that, and it's not surprising to people who've really lost, whoever lost someone and gone through intense grief, uh, they'll certainly talk to you about feeling that kind of chest pain and that, that sort of, uh, it's, it's the same kind of a thing that they would feel as if they were like had like a fear, or a loss, like a, a real kind of a shock to their system.
1: But it does require that, right? It does require the shock to the system because as silly as it sounds, when we're talking about how this could be a psychological thing, if I was just upset with life, and I'm otherwise healthy, and there's no big moment, I couldn't just lie in bed and will myself to die. It doesn't work like that. You can't just make yourself go away, but if you have that giant shock combined with that, perhaps you end up with a situation like this.
0: Maybe, but you know, if you think about people with mental health issues, depression, they are more likely to die as well, because... And again, that's linked to this experience. That there's a stress, you know, chemical referred to as a cortisol, I think that's the one that usually is associated with a kind of a stress experience in the body. And if you are thinking negatively a long period of time, uh, you're really feeling anxious or sad a long period of time. It's not necessarily the sudden shock; it's the ongoing wear and tear of that on your body as well that can be damaging to you and weaken you physically. People people have a hard time understanding this because I think we're sort of used to trying to separate the physical from the emotional from the psychological. You know, like we sort of see them as distinctly different things, but um, you know, all of we're we're all that all at once. We're not just a physical. You know, you can't separate the physical from the psychological.
1: Yeah, you just can't. We, we, you're right. We just can't touch the psychological. If you have a, a a spleen that's not working or something something else, we can we can touch that. We can operate on that and fix it. It's much harder to operate on the psychological.
0: Yeah, and it's harder. In that makes it harder for us to deal with that personally, or when someone that we love is going through a difficult time when they're grieving. You know, it's uh, we can't just kind of send them to the doctor or give them a pill. We, now we're faced with this loss that they're going through, this grief that we're going through, and we're trying to find ways of supporting them, but there's no how do we go about touching that? How do we go about doing something about that? How do we go about helping them? It makes it more complicated.
1: So if this is true, if if the possibility of dying of a broken heart is true, does that mean, would you suggest then, that every person who loses a spouse, loses a loved one, loses a child, is every single person then in that scenario susceptible to this happening? <laughs>
0: Well, I think that we're all susceptible to grief and loss. The more we, you know, again thinking about it in poetic terms, again, more, the more we open our hearts to someone, the more we, you know, allow ourselves to feel deeply and connected to some another person. And I'm going to say this as well about pets too. You, something people don't talk a lot about is that people are really connected to their animals too. So it, the, the more connected you feel to another person or another being, the more you're going to feel that loss, that impact on yourself. So um, you know, it's kind of a tried and true thing. The more you know, you you open your heart to love. You open your heart to all those beautiful, wonderful things are associated with love. But it takes courage to love really well, because the more you love really well, the more you open yourself to intense pain. And again, because pain, of course, is stressful. Um, that means you're more likely to have, you know, just this sort of negative effect. I don't think it's a common thing. I don't think you only have to worry about. Well, if I if I lose someone, I'm going to die the next day. But you are statistically more likely to die within a certain period of time after the loss of someone that you're grieving intensely, grieving intensely. For a number of reasons, not just about the heart again, but also because you're less likely to take care of yourself. You've skinned that loss of will to, to find meaning and make sure that you're taking care of yourself properly, eating properly. Maybe you can't sleep anymore, and we all know that sleep is important to our health. So there's a number of factors that you might be experiencing that may make it statistically more likely for you to die after the loss of a loved one.
1: So if I, let's say, and, and of course this could be anybody, but I think probably most of us, most of the stories that we hear about this, the Carrie Fisher, Debbie Reynolds one is a little unique because it's not two, it's not spouses who had been together for a long time It's a mother and child, of course it's, it's, you know, very significant, but let's say you had two reasonably elderly parents and one passed away. What would you do to try and understand whether the surviving spouse was at risk of this?
0: Yeah, and I think it, I think what I would do is just focus on doing what I ordinarily would do. Regardless, I wouldn't be thinking, "Well, I'm going to be going to be there for them just in case they die." I'm going to be there for them because they need to have my comfort and my company um, so that they can feel like they're supported and someone is, um, you know, a being with them in their moment of in their time of real sorrow. You know, um, the thing to do is, is to not try to rescue a person from that or try to fix that. For them, you can't do that. The idea is just make sure that they don't feel alone with, with, uh, by them sort of feel alone in the middle of all that intense grief and pain. You know, you're there to comfort them, to reassure them that you're with them, that you love them. You maybe take care of them, maybe make food for them if they can't, you know, find in themselves to kind of cook for themselves. So you're there to support them. You're not there to kind of try to, you know, save their lives. you not to say, well, for three months, sounds statistically speaking for three months, that's the. You know, most people die within three months, and so let's get them through the three through the three months, and then the, you know the danger risk is is kind of less, and I can kind of back off. You just do what you ordinarily do. It's like, you know, you're there for a person. You love that person. You want to make sure they don't feel alone in the middle of their pain.
1: I'm guessing this is going to sound like a weird question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, Yeah, I
0: love (laughs) that.
1: No, but most of the time when you read these stories again of these people who have been married for 60 years, 70 years, 75 years, whatever it is, these, these incredible stories where they've been together forever and then they pass away within hours of each other, almost inevitably the moral of the story that these surviving family members give is this is a good thing that they are together now, they don't have to suffer, that that it's really, you know, it's sad that the first one went, but if one's going to go, it's kind of better that they both went. Is that is that a self-defense mechanism, or is there anything actually to that? Well,
0: I, you know, maybe it's better for the person who ordinarily would have had to live for the next year, two years, five years, ten years with this intense grief, who can make that call what's best for another person? Is it best for that person to survive or not survive? That's impossible for us to do. I think it certainly is a comforting thing for us to say for ourselves and that's one of the things that we're kind of faced with at the at times like this is that Um, they're gone. There's nothing we can say to them or for them. We're left with the pain, and so how do we go about being able to move on ourselves? How do we go about living with our pain? And so it's, you know, it's, it's helpful to us to have this kind of a story that um, you know, they're together now, and that's, uh, that's a beautiful thing. So you kind of imagine that they're continuing to live on, but they found each other, and they're no longer alone. Of course, that's very comforting. It's, it's, uh, it's a useful, helpful thing for us to believe that that's, that that's the case, and who knows? Maybe that's true, maybe it's not true. No one can know that for sure, but people certainly believe these things, and I think that there's comfort in, them, in that for them.
1: Well, it, 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 I guess it stops the perpetuation of the grief. Because if you've already had one person pass away and now a second person, somewhere along the way, you want to actually find some kind of end to that or some kind of silver lining or something, and that allows the surviving people to believe that somehow this is a good thing, and it it probably makes it easier to mourn.
0: Yeah, but it's really important for you to not say that to somebody else. It's the kind of thing that might be really helpful to say to yourself, because if that's what you believe and that's what gets you through, then that's great. That's really important. But the last thing I think you want to be doing when you encounter someone else in their, in their grief, so let's suppose uh, you know you you are a friend of, uh, of someone who's just lost both their parents very shortly one after the other, it's not very helpful at all to say well you know they they at least they're together now they're in a better <laughs> place and they're not suffering, um, you know it's just, it just shows you how much they loved each other, that's really now you focusing on what you think you need to do in order for you not to feel so helpless in the face of someone else's grief. That's not a good thing to say to someone else. That may not be something that they believe that's, um, that's, that may be you kind of coming across like you're trying to cheer them up, and that's disrespectful and kind of hurtful. They're in the middle of pain. The last thing they need for you is to try to fix that for you. Death isn't fixable. Grief isn't fixable. It's something that you end up needing to live with, and have other people be there with you, so that you don't have to live with it by yourself.
1: It's a uh, it's an interesting one because again, it's one of those things that I it, it almost seems like it be it is a it seems like it should be a cliche. It really does. It seems like it that the dying of a broken heart should be something we just say because it sounds very poetic, as I say, and very dramatic, but it, it also sounds, as you look more into it, like there there probably is something to this, That is it, that there are people who really do, you know, whether it's a broken heart or whether it's just dying of stress, I guess, is the the more clinical way to say it. Because I think, did we not hear Debbie Reynolds? I think it was a stroke or something, so it wasn't really a heart. But, I mean, that's picking, I suppose. But, um, but it, it's a very interesting thing. I, I, Theo Sellis, I really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this.
0: You're welcome. Take care. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on AM 900 CHML.